The scripture this morning is from Matthew 4, verses 12 through 23. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Something I'm well aware of in how we approach the scriptures is we need to be very careful in not uh, preaching or teaching around a particular, what they would call a pericope, which think of a periscope, something that zooms right in on something and just looks at three or four or five words and then tries to draw uh, an eternal conclusion, an absolute truth out of those few words. Some Christian denominations and sects have been based upon some particular reading of some obscure text without reference to the rest of Scripture. John Wesley was a great believer in taking the whole testimony of Scripture, bringing it together, and trying, therefore, to find the truth out of the different ways God has expressed his truth. So the epistle of James may say something which doesn't sound the same as Ephesians. And you might say, well, gee, those sound like two different things on the same subject. What's going on here? So what you try to do is take the whole counsel of Scripture, bring all these things together, and in the end you find out, well, James and Ephesians actually do have agreement. They were just expressing things from different perspectives. They were expressing things in a way that might speak to a particular people in a different way. So when we come to the Gospel of Matthew, for instance, Matthew writes specifically to the Jewish people. It's evident because he is quoting Old Testament prophets and all who a Gentile would have no idea what in the world is he talking about. It's very uh, Even the genealogy in Matthew, it is evident there as he starts with Abraham. Who is Abraham? He's the father of the Jewish people. And so for them, you believe you begin with Abraham. Now, if you're Luke, 
you're writing your gospel as a message to the Gentiles, to people who don't have that Old Testament basis, uh, who aren't really con- so concerned about Father Abraham. Who do you begin with? Adam. Adam, who is the first fruit of all of humanity. Okay? So when I come into Matthew, one of the things that as I was preparing to preach that I was aware of was how we jump through these different scriptures each week and sometimes don't put them together in a way. You're just taking a segment here and a segment there and you don't see the whole story. So I asked myself uh, earlier this week, I said, what do these first four chapters of Matthew, we're in Matthew 4 today, is there a unified theme here? Is there something in how Matthew is presenting the story of Jesus that we need to pay attention to because there's an overarching met- met- message in the whole thing? Is that there? And so I began with the part that most of you skip over when you're reading Matthew. And that's the genealogy at the beginning. You know, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. But there actually is a message within that, uh, that lineage listing that you see there that begins with Abraham. And so I tried to take that and then look at the, uh, the second chapter, the third and the fourth, and say, what is Matthew telling us in trying to tell the story in this manner? And so as I, I looked at, at that genealogy, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing here, there are a lot of names here, and I looked at Abraham, Father Abraham, a perfect man, right? A saint. Never did anything wrong except to lie to Pharaoh about his wife and say, she's my sister. He had some reasons for this. And then Pharaoh says, well, I can add your sister to my court of wives. And now now Abraham's caught in a lie and he's got to get out of it. Abraham wasn't always perfect. And so we begin with an imperfect fallen man. Uh, Now, this is the lineage that Jesus is coming from. These are his forebears. They should be perfect, right? So the next one I came to down the line here was David. Well, there's a perfect guy. You know, the, the shepherd boy who becomes a king, writes psalms, beautiful psalms of praise. One of the great poets of, of, of history. What about David? Well, I don't have to tell you all, David knew how to sin. He was good at everything. He was good musically. He was good at politics. He was good at war. He was good at poetry, and he was good at sin. You know, murderous sin. Having a friend of his killed, sent to the front lines, the most dangerous place, hoping he would be killed, so then Bathsheba would be widowed, and David could claim her as his own wife. And before that, he was already fooling around with her on the side. While Uriah was away. So this, you know, this... uh. I'm wondering, why do we have all these sinners in here? I'm sure Matthew tried to find those ancestors of Jesus who would not be sinners because here comes the perfect Lamb of God, right? And then I came to Jehoshaphat. And I'm only saying this because I just wanted to say Jehoshaphat. I love that name, Jehoshaphat. If I had another son, I would name him Jehoshaphat. Uh But I did a little research on Jehoshaphat. I mean, I had a little knowledge of him, but Jehoshaphat was a great king. He reigned for 25 years, which was for a long time. He worked hard to get the people to turn back to worship of God and away from idols of the people around them. He tried to restore 
the laws. He, he declared uh, a Sabbath uh, time for the people for their fields, uh, a year of jubilee. He was trying to follow everything in Exodus, and, and he was a very successful king. But then they said, well, there was that one time, though, where he linked up with the, uh, with the tribe of Israel, which was the northern kingdom, which uh, the tribe of Judah were the faithful ones. Israel had reverted into idol worship. He did go through some problems there when he let one of his sons marry one of the king of Israel's daughters, and things got bad. And So for about a year in his reign, he messed up. But then he repented, and he came back. It's all, all that's in the Bible, where he repents, and he comes back. And he rededicates himself to God. So, unfortunately, Jehoshaphat wasn't perfect either. So I'm going through here, and I'm seeing all of these people. And I say, okay, all these names, what do they have in common? Right down to Joseph and Mary. They were sinners. Every single one of them was a sinner. Matthew wasn't putting out this lineage to say, see how perfect the people Jesus comes from were. See how worthy they were of being called his ancestors and progenitors. That's not what he was saying. He was reminding us that he was a son of man in addition to being the son of God. Fallen man. And then come Joseph and Mary and we say, well, weren't they perfect? Well, I'll just give you one instance. We don't have a lot about their lives. Uh, Joseph was going to put Mary aside, divorce her, until the angel came and said, don't do it. But, but it said Joseph cared about her, and he was going to do it in a very quiet way so as not to disgrace her. So he was obeying the law, so no foul there. But then we come to the age of 12, when Jesus is 12 years old. Do you remember that story? Goes to Jerusalem with his family, you know, big wagon train of people, all the family, extended family. They're all traveling together, lots of kids and everything, lots of confusion. Jerusalem's the big city, and they get there, and they leave Jerusalem. And it's all like that movie Home Alone, you know, which I'm sure stole the story from this. They leave Jesus back in Jerusalem. And the story is that they probably were traveling in different family groups, And they assumed that Jesus was off with one of his friends in another part of the family, one of his cousins, playing around. And he must be okay, he's with them. But they got, you know, a day or so away, and they realized he wasn't with them. And so they go back. And the response of his parents to his not being with them, when they find him in the temple, when they find people being amazed at this this 12-year-old's wisdom, don't you know that we were worried for you? Don't you know that we were fearful for you? You know, kind of like, why would you do this to us? We see a moment there, maybe of anger, certainly of fear and worry. So they're not perfect either. They're human like us. They worry, they fear. They get a little angry with their children. Sinners. I go along here, and, and, then, and then we have... The birth, you know, after the birth of Jesus and after the Magi have come and everything, we got, we got King Herod, and King Herod is an evil guy. King Herod wants to kill little, little children to make sure that Jesus doesn't take his throne away from them. We see the evil of people revealed, and then we see John the Baptist coming, and John the Baptist comes, and John is calling people to repentance in multitudes of people. Thousands of people are coming out to be baptized in the Jordan because they are all what? Sinners. 
in need of repentance. And then we come to the fourth chapter. And in the fourth chapter of Matthew, Jesus has just been in the wilderness at the end of chapter 3, where he is tested, and Jesus comes out with a perfect score. I had a brother who always had perfect scores in school. My brother, Alan, God bless him, lives in Charlottesville now, moved from Texas. Uh, a hero of Texas, they declared him. Great man. My brother, the great, my younger brother, the great man, who skipped grades in school. Because he loved me so much, he wanted to be in the same grade as me. Well, that was such an honor for me. You know, people, oh, your brother is so smart. What happened to you? You know, I was the forgotten middle kid in all that, you know. Yep, you too. Yeah, I knew we had a lot in common. There you go. So, you know, he made perfect scores all the time. He made A's, enough A's, that I came to see a blessing. See, you can take, I once heard a preacher talk, very easy illustration, when you get a lemon, make lemonades. You've heard that. That's what this guy would say all the time. When you get a lemon, make lemonades. So with my brother's A's, they got me free bowling games at the bowling alley. He didn't like to bowl, so I would take his report card up there and get the free games that I had earned. I had earned by being his brother and being embarrassed that he was in my class. So, but Jesus comes out perfect in this temptation time, and, th- and then after going through that final exam, he begins to preach, Matthew says. Now, here, here's what's interesting here. I want you to really grab hold of this. Jesus is the perfect Son of God come into this world. A world that has given God nothing but grief. God cries continually for this world. God yearns for this world to turn back to Him. He sends His prophets and we stone them and kill them. He tries everything He can to bring us back. And the whole time we're thinking, well, God's not doing very well here. If He's almighty and all-powerful, why does He keep failing with us? He should be able to come up with something. Well, He did have something planned. The whole time, all the stuff you're reading about in the Old Testament, all the times when the people don't return to God, when they rebel against God, and you're saying, well, God needs to come up with a plan. He does have a plan. That's part of His plan. And the plan is being unfolded. And then we see the plan revealed here as Jesus begins to preach. And you're saying, well, yeah, Jesus is kind of coming. He's, he's revealing to us new truths about the Old Testament. He's reestablishing the law. He's, you know, and, but there's going to be a surprise ending at the end of this whole thing, you see, that nobody counted on. That was God's plan all around. And it tells us here in Matthew, the, the, the fourth chapter, as Jesus begins his ministry, it says it's like a light, a light has dawned in the land of the shadow of death. Jesus, the light of the world. And here's something I noticed in Matthew's message here. It's that he moves immediately to Jesus calling his disciples. Now think about again, the perfect Son of God come into the world to seek and save the lost. Doesn't he go to Jerusalem and get the high-powered, highly educated priests and scribes to be his co-workers in the field? Why do you go and get illiterate fishermen to work with you? Why do you in the Gospel of John call them over and over, my friends? Why would you do that? You don't have to do that. You're the Son of God. You don't have to uh, uh, you know, bow down to them. You don't have to wash their feet. You don't have to call them friends. You're better than they are. Why would you associate yourselves with them, yourself with them? You know, I'm thinking through all that. 
Jesus then goes down and he heals the sick, which in that day and time, he's touching diseased people. People with horrible, horrible uh, wounds and scars and people who, who have leprosy and skin disease. And Jesus is touching them. He doesn't have to do that. He's the Son of God. And no wonder the people had always imagined that the way the Messiah was going to come into the world would be in a golden chariot with white war horses before Him. That was their imagery. But Jesus, the Son of God, comes in a very different way. And again, Matthew has kept showing us that we are sinners. Jesus is perfect. Satan can't trip him up. So what what do you think makes sense here from a human point of view? That Jesus will give himself on a cross for the sinners? Does that make any sense from the human heart? In fact, it's it's no wonder that that the Bible keeps telling us in the New Testament over and over and over, the disciples say because they got it. They understood that Matthew was kept reinforcing, we're the sinners, he's the perfect one. And yet he chose to associate with us. And yet he chose to serve us, to wash our feet, to die on a cross for us. And then the epistles over and over, because Paul got it, because James gets it, because John gets it, we hear, God loved us so much. He sends his only begotten son to die for us. And elsewhere, it says, to die for us while we were still sinners. We didn't have to clean ourselves up first. We didn't have to uh, go and uh, make ourselves perfect, which was never going to happen. While we were yet sinners, Jesus dies for us. That proves, it says in another place, God's love toward us. Something we repeat every time we have communion. This This is the most incredible thing in the world. That God would do this for us. This was his plan all along. But first he had to show us that there was no way that we could defeat sin on our own. He could give us laws. He could send us prophets. He could give us rules and regulations and the temple and everything else we wanted. We could sacrifice all the animals that we wanted to. But we were still going to remain sinners because that was our fallen human nature. That had to be shown and proven. And then at that point was the time when he would send Jesus. To say, but that's not the way you're going to get back to me. That's not the way that you're going to earn your love for me. You don't have to earn your love. I am love. You were created in my image. In 1 John it says that you have to treat people with respect. Why? They have been, or in the image of God, they've been created in the image of God. That's why we treat people with respect. Not because they have earned it from a fallen human standpoint, but because no matter how lowly they are, no no matter how horrible they are, whether they have just put you on a cross and nailed you to the cross, because we respect them, we will say, God forgive them, for they know not what they do. We will respect them because they are made in God's image, and God respected them enough to say, I will die for them. That's an amazing thing. There's nothing like it in all the world. The last thing I'm going to to just share with you about this that occurred to me this week is if God loved us that much to do that, how come we don't love ourselves? 
I'm thoroughly convinced that most of the hate in this world comes out of our self-hate. It begins there. We may not even think about it. We're so used to it. We don't think that we're worth God's love. Therefore, God must not love us. How many people have said, well, I'm not coming to the communion table. You know, you hear about people, I I can't come there. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. Really? Is that what the Bible says it's about? You being good enough? No matter how low you are, no matter how filthy the rags of your soul, God loves you and He died for you and He wants you to come. In actuality, staying away from God is the worst thing that you can do. And yet our self-hate will say, I'm not worthy. I can't go to Him. And because of that self-loathing, uh, uh, we'll cut ourselves off from others. We're not good enough to be in the church. We're not good enough to be around people. We're not good enough. And, and in actuality, that drives us to a narcissism where we make ourselves the center of everything. And then we begin to hate other people because they don't care for us. They don't, they, you know, that church, they, they never visited me. They never, you know, and, and the whole time we're pushing people away. And I really think that this is, is, is where Satan gets his greatest victories. Is when we do not recognize the joyful, incredible, miraculous truth that God loves us no matter what. That there is nothing in the earth, above the earth, under the earth, nothing in all of creation, as Paul says in Romans 8, that can separate us from God's love. That we think somehow it's something we have to deserve or earn. And we fail so often that we give up on God and Satan is rejoicing saying, yes, that's what you had to realize the whole time. You had to realize, just like Adam and Eve in the garden realized after they sinned, what was the first thing they did? They covered up. They were embarrassed. They were ashamed. So they covered up. And that's what self-loathing does. That's what it means when, when we don't think we're good enough, is we begin to cover up our sin. But in covering it up, we know we have to run away and hide from God, just as Adam and Eve did in the garden. And then pretty soon we find that we have separated ourselves from God. We're no longer following Jesus. We're no longer trying Him. Why? Because we've convinced ourselves that we're not worthy. We're tired of failing over and over and over. There are people today not in this church building because that's what happened to them. They found the Christian life burdensome. It was a constant reminder. I'm not good enough. But it's only because they didn't understand the gospel. They didn't understand what the scriptures were really saying and what God was saying. The reason I sent Jesus to die for you on that cross was to say to you, you don't have to do anything. I will do it all. You don't have to deserve it. I will forgive you from the cross. You can be my friend even if you're just a fisherman. You can be my friend if you don't know anything. If you haven't memorized a Bible verse, you are still my friend. And greater love has no man than this than that I would give myself for my friends. That's what Jesus said. I don't know how to communicate that love. I don't think there's any way to do that. We have a lot of songs. What wondrous love is this? What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend? Other snippets from songs that express the fact that we can't understand this. But this is the miracle of our lives. It's the great joy of our lives is the fact that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners and that proves God's love toward us. And you don't have to do a single thing today except trust in that love. That's a beautiful thing. 
Because I'll tell you, I tell you, I have been perfect for so many years, and it was only recently that I sinned for the first time. So that's why all this is coming to me right now. I realized all those years of perfection were wasted. Isn't it amazing how many of us get this wrong? Matthew wanted us to know. John wanted us to know. Mark wanted us to know. Luke wanted us to know. That's the common theme of the entire New Testament is that Christ died for us. And we don't have to continually beat ourselves up and murder ourselves in any way. We don't have to uh, in any way prove ourselves to God because He already loves us. We're His children. We're made in His image. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. I pray that light has dawned in your lives. I pray that you know the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, uh, I want to share with you as our parting prayer, uh, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you but will rejoice over you with singing. Folks, as we leave this place, may that sink into our hearts. May we know that God not not only tolerates us with His love, but He takes great delight in us that He will rejoice over us with singing. What a wonderful, wonderful image that is for us to go forth. Go in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ and know that He loves you this day. And amen.